Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Chad Ford says his book, Dangerous Love, is about everything I've learned in the past 15 years working as a conflict mediator, professor, and researcher, trying to understand why I and others struggle through conflict and how to solve it. Dangerous Love, he says, explains why we struggle with conflicts, how we disconnect from the people at the very time we need to be most connected to them, the predictable patterns of justification and conflict escalation that ensue, and most importantly, it gives us a path to let go uh, of fear in the face of uh, conflict. Chad Ford is Associate Professor of Intercultural Peacebuilding and Director of the David O. McKay Center for Intercultural Understanding at Brigham Young University, Hawaii. Uh, sits on the executive committee of the Board of Trustees for Peace Players, an organization that uses sports to unite divided communities. And he also works with the Arbiter Institute as a consultant on global conflict resolution initiative. His work has frequently taken him into conflict zones around the world. He's made nearly 50 trips to the Middle East and worked on numerous other conflicts around the world, both as a mediator and a facilitator. And he spent 17 years as senior editor and writer at ESPN. Uh, Chad Ford is visiting Utah State University, a guest of the uh, uh, College of Humanities and Social Sciences Global Peacebuilding Certificate Program. He'll be giving a lecture titled Transforming Violence into Collaboration. That's 4.30 this afternoon in Old Main 326 on the USU campus. Old Main 326, 4.30. It's free and open to the public, funded by the Ch- uh, Chaz Tanner Talks. Uh, so, Chad uh, Ford, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Aloha. Aloha. Um, so uh, let's just uh, briefly mention your sports work, and then we'll get to the conflict. Um, you've uh, you've been involved uh, with with NBA draft, right? Yeah. Uh, that's principally basketball, principally, yeah, right? Exactly. On ESPN. I think people find that strange, those two, uh, and how they go together. And it was a bit, bit serendipitous when I was in graduate school at Georgetown, um, I was paying my own way through school and trying to figure out how to get that done, held on a job. It was a lot of work. I had to go into graduate school like that. I had a young family. And uh, one of my friends, Jason Peary, uh, who was a, a classmate of mine, we started a website. Uh, this is back in the 1990s when, you know, that was the Wild West. And, uh, and you know, the whole idea was to do something we were interested in, sports, be able to do it on our own time, uh, you know, work flexible hours and maybe make some money to help pay through school. And right as I was graduating from school, ESPN came in and bought the website. Uh, and I had a very difficult decision. Do I leave and, and go do the sort of academic work that I'd graduated with? Uh, ESPN was inviting me over. I decided to go over to ESPN from about 2001 to 2005. Uh, started actually, interestingly, running their business insider and editing, but quickly moved in front of the camera uh, to talk about NBA and NBA draft. And then 2005, BYU-Hawaii uh, came and offered me a job as the director of the McKay Center, a new initiative that they were launching around global peace building, which is really what I'd been studying and, and was passionate about. And it was just an offer that was too good to pass up, not financially, but but in the sort of impact that I want to have in my career. And, and, and then we were able to work out, it was under contract from ESPN at the time, and was able to work out a a deal where in the summers I would cover the draft and in the fall and winter I'd be teaching conflict resolution classes. And I'd, I'd lived these two lives for for quite a long time, actually. A lot of times my students had no idea that I was doing the draft. Occasionally we have students that show up hoping that I would be talking about the NBA and be very, very disappointed. Uh, and, uh, and, and then I actually even found a way shortly thereafter with my work with peace players to combine 
um, the two, they use basketball to bring together young people from divided communities in Israel, South Africa, uh, Northern Ireland, Cyprus, and, and a number of communities in the United States. And and actually sort of take this power of sport, which was something I was passionate about, and think about how it can be used as a tool in peace building. And, and, and you know, that's been a passion project of mine uh, really ever since since 2005 and something that I get to work right alongside NBA general managers like R.C. Buford, uh, Dennis Lindsay, who was the um, general manager for a while of the Utah Jazz, was, was heavily involved um, with peace players as well. Uh, and conflict resolution experts on the other side. And so that, that was the sort of bridging, bridging thing together, but uh, I'm done with that now. This is actually my last week uh, uh-huh. doing, doing NBA and NBA draft after uh, 26 years uh, of, of doing that in some form or the other. I'm, I'm retiring from that and, uh, and partly because of the book and just my academic work and what have you and, and visits like this to USU. I, I've just found that I don't have the bandwidth to do it all anymore. And especially in the world that we're living in today, I just, I just feel like I would rather use my time to try to help with conflict, to help with the polarization that we're seeing, you know, happening in our country and around the world. And uh, so that's going to be the focus for as long as I'm around. Well, congratulations. You'll have a little more time, I guess. Maybe. Yeah, 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 exactly. To devote to your, to your real passion. Uh, before we jump into, uh, you know, Dangerous Love and the Principles, and I, I do want to talk about uh, how this is tearing apart families. And you, you have a stark illustration on your website. I want to talk, get your perspective on Ukraine as as a you know a mediator, negotiator. Uh, you know, right now in the middle of the war, but there's going to come a time when I guess peace negotiations will ramp up. What are some things you're looking at there? Yeah, they're happening. I was just out in uh, Israel, and Israel has been the kind of lead mediator between Russia and Ukraine, and one of the few countries that that has a a pretty strong relationship. With both countries, um, Israel has. Ironically, I'm in mediating disputes that Israel's having internally um, with Palestinians while they're out, you know, working with Russia and Ukraine. But I appreciate the efforts, you know, that are going on there. You know, as, as someone who's who's worked in a lot of conflict zones and war zones, you know, I I think war hits home for me in a, in a way that it might not for people that just watch it on TV. I've I've been in communities that have been devastated by war. I've I've worked with families that have lost um, loved ones as, as as part of war. The economic destruction that that you know is happening really on, on you know on both sides of this. And there there's nothing good that that is coming out of this, right? For for anyone, it's just a lot of devastation, and and. One of the one of the principles uh, from one of my mentors, John Paul Lederach, was that you know violence and war is a, is a lack of human imagination, right? It's it's when we have a problem and we can't think of any other way to solve it than to go bludgeon the other person to death to solve the problem, right? If if you literally go away and I'm going to make you go away, then the the problem's solved. And and so yes, at some point mediators are going to come in. There'll be some sort of peace agreement and. And then they'll work on rebuilding the country. But, you know, I look at I look back and think about how we failed to stop this from happening at at the first place. And I I think that it's understandable. It's it's impossible to get all of this right. But at at, at the same time. We failed in fundamental ways. And when I say we, I mean the world, not just any one particular person or particular country. To, to recognize that this conflict had been brewing for decades, um, that our ways of going about it instead of 
pursuing paths of de-escalation and, and human connection were to often fund one side or the other and to rally and hope that they would get strong enough that they could just topple uh, the other side and and eventually it's led to this sort of violence. And so, you know, my, my interest is always, ironically, how do we prevent this from happening? And, and, and when it does happen, how do we quickly de-escalate it? And when you get to the the stage of war, there's no quick answers. There's no easy solutions. There's no way to to undo this without just absolute devastation. And so one of the reasons I wrote the book really to individuals, even though a lot of my work is there, is if you've got conflict in your life, don't let it become Russia and Ukraine, right? Uh, there's there's ways, even if it's you're already in the middle of it, to stop it from becoming that and and get on a more constructive path. And and then there's things that you can do to prevent that from happening in your future relationships. Um, so we'll get into the, some of the principles in, uh, in the book as we go along here. I want to jump in here to uh, you have an experience from a family, mm-hmm. a, a real family, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Um, a man named Hank, a little bit older, he yep. has some grown children, um, he decides to write a letter to his children. And and for, he would tell you, I guess this is coming out of love, I'm going to express my beliefs, yeah. including political beliefs. It was a sort of life story, actually. Uh, and yeah, it included his whole genealogy and history, and he was an immigrant to the United States and all of that stuff. But it also included his religious and political beliefs and, and why his whole life history was leading the, him this direction. And so, you know, we'll preview this. Uh, he's conservative. Um, he takes great pains in the book to say, these are these are my beliefs, lifelong, well predates Fox News. He, yeah. He's preemptively <laughs> anticipating what his children will say. Children, many of them are, I guess, liberal. Um, so sends the letter out. So to, to tell us what happens. Um, one of his daughters... Uh, reads this and just is is deeply offended um, by what, what her father wrote and picks up the phone and to his surprise, I mean, really to his surprise, gets an earful for the next several hours um, about how wrong this is, that he's brainwashed, that that his beliefs are offensive. Why did he send this out? And and he's really devastated. First of all, like he he really thought I you know I sent this as an act of love. I'm I'm sharing with my children what I think and believe, and she's devastated. And other people in their family, how can my father think this way? How can he believe this way? We actually do believe that he's brainwashed. We we don't, and and, and this was happening. This is happening in families all over the United States. There there was a, a research a Pew poll that uh, said in one in I think it's one in six Americans had quit speaking to a family member after the 2016 election. And my guess is many more Americans, maybe they didn't quit speaking. They're speaking to each other, but they're not speaking in, in loving, friendly tones uh, towards each other. And, and so I think it's a phenomenon that encapsulates some of the polarization that, that we've seen growing uh, in America and around the world and, and, how div- and how it comes all the way back from something more obscure like politics all the way back down into family relationships and, and our ability to you know, be with our siblings, to be with our, our parents uh, in, in ways that are challenging on all sides. I want to read just uh, some quotes here, which I think will resonate with people. I certainly resonated with me. Um, so, uh, you write, uh, you're one of my students, you, you reference one of your students. I'm afraid to even call home these days, mm-hmm. right? That, that resonates. 
Um, I've lost my parents to Fox News. Mm. Um, on the other hand, parents are saying, you know, send kids away to university, and I don't recognize the kid that comes home. They're being brainwashed by the by the university. Um, and uh, and then uh, one colleague says, what's the point of even engaging? I've lost all respect for this person because yeah. of their beliefs, right? Uh, made me question staying in the relationship. Uh, on the other hand, uh, a conservative person says, well, these people are deceived by fake news, right? Yeah. So it's time to just cut them out of my life. We're hearing this all over, right? Yeah. We are, and uh, and I'm, I'm sure our listeners here have felt this in on one side or the other, uh, you know, of this and, and the, the convictions are deeply held. Um, the grievances that people feel in these moments are, are, are deep and real. Um, they're not just performative. They're, they're, they're deep. I think sometimes our politicians can be performative, but I think the average everyday person, um, these beliefs matter to them in, in, in real ways. And, and because, we become more polarized. Those beliefs become more black and white. They become more good versus evil. Um, and I, you know, I use this phrase, I don't use this phrase in the book, but I, you know, I use this phrase a lot in this sort of work that the parties bring their gods to the table. And when I say gods, I, sometimes it's literally God, God told me, or God said this to me, but our gods can be any sort of ideology or belief or whatever we believe to be true with a capital T right? It's, it's truth. It's not just truth for me. It's true for, for everyone that's out there. We, we don't all share those same truths, uh, even the capital T ones. But when we bring our gods to the table, here's the thing about gods. Gods don't negotiate. Gods don't compromise. They're gods, um, right? And so I feel empowered at that moment when I, when I bring that truth to the table to say, my duty as a follower of this ideology, political belief, God is to stand my ground. That's 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 my duty as, as being a good follower of this thing is to stand my ground, and 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 I empathize with that. I also carry with me truths that I think are are, are capital T's that are deeply important to me, and I think are deeply helpful to the world. I wrote a book about. <laughs> about some of these things that I know there's other people that read my book and disagree with that. Chad, you're, you're, you're totally wrong um, on this issue. So I, I'm empathetic to it, but it, it, it does create a problem from a conflict perspective as a mediator, right? If, if I believe that I don't have to negotiate because I have the truth, then it's very difficult to get to peace, but it's very easy to get to war um, at that point because gods can get, also give me permission to take care of this conflict by ultimately getting rid of the other side, whether that's, you know, canceling someone or whether that's getting someone fired or whether that's cutting someone off from the family or our life. And unfortunately, as we get to Russia and Ukraine, to actual physical violence and war um, that can come out of these things. Um, and, and what's so fascinating to me in all of this, when people say stand my ground, is a complete lack of acknowledgement that the ground that we stand on always is not just my ground. It's always shared. In our families, it's shared with our family members. In, a, in our communities, it's shared with other community members. In our, in our churches and places of worship, it's shared with the other people um, that are there. And when we just shift it from my ground to our ground, it requires a, a level of schools, uh, of skills and, and skill sets and mindsets 
that we're often just not equipped for in conflict when we're feeling fear and what have you. And so my book was really written to sort of say, if you're feeling that way, that's okay. That's normal. That's a human reaction to things. But if we can shift our mindsets a bit, think about my ground being our ground. And here are some skill sets that we can build and use to help us negotiate that ground together. We have the ability to still hold our beliefs, to not let go of the things that we deeply believe in, but at the same time live more peaceably with people who don't share those beliefs. And that uh, we'll go to a break soon here, and then we'll jump into a definition of dangerous love. Mm-hmm. And uh, who's it dangerous for, right? That's yeah. a, that's the own key. And then you have some principles uh, uh, we'll talk about. But um, one objection I, I could hear people saying, you've probably heard this, um, the, you know, the, bringing our gods to the, to, the, to the table, holding these truths that we, that we hold so dear, uh, isn't there a danger of letting go of some of those things, you know, that, that I don't, I don't want to give, uh, you know, I don't want to let go of my truth. Yeah. I think it's. I think one of the things about conflict, though, is that when we feel a particular truth threatened, that truth becomes the all-encompassing big capital T of all of the truths. When actually, in in a non-fearful setting, when I don't feel threatened, it's one of many truths that I actually hold. Right. Um, so, for example, just as I may stand, say, stand my ground and, and to the point that I have to defend that ground, even if it comes to violence, I may have a similar truth that says, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, right. And those two are now in conflict with each other. But if I feel threatened, that one takes a back seat. This one comes to the forefront and I feel like I have to defend that. And I'll, I'll sort of ignore the other truth that I have, even though in other elements of my life, it's the most important truth. Um, right. For Christians, Jesus says that this, this is the, one of the two greatest, greatest commandments, um, but we often don't act like it. Um, right. Uh, and, and so one of my jobs is to try to help remind people that the truth that they hold are varied. There's many actually truths that we hold. And how do we bring all of those truths into the conversation instead of just hyper-focusing on one and saying, I defend this truth while ignoring the 50 other truths that I also hold to be important and true. And so a lot of my work will actually be getting curious, and this is hard to do. It's easier as a mediator than the person that's feeling attacked at the time, getting curious, asking a lot of questions about people, understanding where those beliefs come from, what personal experiences have I experienced in my life that have led me um, to these beliefs? Are there any counterexamples that I've lived in my life that say, well, yes, this is true, but not always true, um, which which is the truth a lot of times as well. And, and ultimately, at the end of the day, um, we can value our truths, but at the deepest level of truth is relationship. And do I value my truth to the point that I destroy relationship? Um, which, um, you know, my belief is, is, is the one thing that brings us most of our joy uh, in, in life is the relationships that we have. And I can't tell you how many marriages I've worked with or how many communities that have been fighting over a truth and have completely just devastated and destroyed all relationships um, in the process. And at the end, you're left... What's a truth without people? What's a truth without without relationship anymore? Let's uh, take a break now. We'll be back with uh, much more. We'll we'll define dangerous love and uh, and give you some principles, uh, practices as well. Uh, Chad Ford is our guest. He is associate professor of intercultural peace building and director of the David O. McKay Center for Intercultural Understanding at Brigham Young University, Hawaii. 
and he is uh, visiting Utah State University as a guest of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences Global Peacebuilding Certificate Program. And uh, he'll give a public lecture funded by the Chez uh, Tenor Talks. Uh, that is today, 4.30 this afternoon, in Old Main 326. So 4.30 this afternoon, Old Main 326 on the USU campus, uh, free and open to the public, is titled Transforming Violence into Collaboration. Uh, Chad Ford's book is Dangerous Love, and that's uh, available uh, anywhere you buy books, right? Absolutely. Um, So, and the uh, website is uh, dangerouslovebook.com. So we'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, my guest for the hour is Chad Ford. He is Associate Professor of Intercultural Peacebuilding, Director of the David O. McKay Center for Intercultural Understanding at Brigham Young University, Hawaii. He's author of the book Dangerous Love. And uh, he is on the OSU campus as a guest of the OSU College of Humanities and Social Sciences Global Peacebuilding Certificate Program. He'll give a lecture this afternoon at 4.30, funded by the Chaz Tanner Talks, uh, 4.30 p.m., Old Main 326 on the USU campus, lectures titled Transforming Violence into uh, Collaboration. Uh, So, Chad Ford, um, define dangerous love. Yeah, you know, it it was interesting. Uh, The title of the book actually didn't come until after the book was written. I was actually, sometimes this happens with authors, like I was stuck with, you know, what do you title this? And the the idea actually came from a, a sermon that Martin Luther King I had given in a book that was called Strength to Love. And uh, it, it was a retelling, uh, as, as he often did in his speeches, of, of, a, of a biblical story of the Good Samaritan. And he gets to the point where, if you're familiar with the story, there's a, you know, a traveler who's attacked by thieves on a road, and, and there's a priest and a rabbi who pass the person who's clearly injured and, and uh, hurting and they pass him by, and then this Samaritan, uh, who was a bit of an outcast, actually stops um, at, at great personal risk uh, to care for the the traveler, actually bound him up and take him there. And 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 King refers to this um, work as he doesn't use the word dangerous, but this sort of love that um, transcends a sense of asking the question that the priest and rabbi might ask, which is, what will happen to me if I do this thing? What sort of danger am I putting myself in? Or what inconvenience or time might it be to help this person? And instead, the the Samaritan asks this question, what will happen to them if I don't stop um, to do this thing? And I thought it was really reminiscent of the, the critical point in conflict where most of the clients that I work with, with it, which is that I'll change when the other person changes. I will make an act of respect or conciliatory act when they go first. Of course, both sides see this. Both sides think they're right. The other side's wrong. Both people think the other, the, the other side's the one that needs to apologize and the one that needs to change. And so nothing happens. And so, so much of my work is getting people to do what I call the most dangerous move is I'm going to be the person that turns first. Well, the first question that people ask is, well, what will happen if I do that? I don't trust this person. They'll take advantage of me. Um, I'll be losing the moral high ground or the negotiating high ground or whatever if I make this first move in in the process. And our self-interest kicks in so 
quickly and so strongly that even though I can point to all of this evidence and research that shows that if you you do this, you will start de-escalating this conflict and you will get to the place that, that you want to be at, people can't do it. And, and so some of it's a product of fear, right? Why did the rabbi and the, and, and the priest not stop on the side of it? They were afraid. They were afraid, oh, if we get down and stop and help this person, maybe the same thing's going to happen to us. King actually even posits maybe these are actually thieves that are pretending to be hurt um, that are on the ground. But this, this self-preservation instinct kicks in in conflict that's really counterintuitive to actually the work that needs to be done uh, to get through conflict and make it constructive instead of destructive. And, and to me, the, the answer, the antidote to the fear is love. And and when I say love, I'm not talking about romantic love. I'm not saying that you have to be attracted to the other person, nor do I mean the love that that, that means like, right? I, I don't have to like the person or agree with the person or be best friends with the person. And look, we use, in our culture, we use love in those ways. When I say that I love someone, I might mean it romantically, or I love my friends. I like being around them, or I love pizza or chocolate, right? I mean, we use love in these different ways. But the the word love has another meaning, and you know, in the Greek, it's it's the difference between eros, which is sort of romantic love, and philia, which is sort of like love, and agape, uh, which is this idea that I care about you not because of some sort of benefit that it gives to me, which like and romantic love are obviously deriving benefits back, but because you're a human being, because because you matter as as a soul, and that that care is. The sort of care that, um, you know, in, in the New Testament says, like, it seeketh not its own, right? It's, it's the sort of love that is there that is towards a person because you matter, not because you necessarily are going to love me back. And when we can generate that sort of love, when we can see someone so deeply that their wants, needs, and desires matter as much to me as my own, then we muster the courage to turn in the face of uncertainty, in the face of unpredictability, in the face in a, in a very vulnerable way towards another person and say, I see you so clearly, your needs, wants, and desires that I'm turning towards you. I'm creating space for us to reconnect. And to me, in all the things that you can do in conflict, it is the single most powerful move that you can make to de-escalate a conflict and actually move it towards conflict transformation and recon- reconciliation. Does it work all the time? No. Nothing I've ever found works 100% of the time. It's possible that the other person won't turn towards you. It's possible that the other person might reject those overtures or reject an apology or reject a, a gesture. It's, it's possible that those things can happen. Uh, but the, the likelihood that we get to conflict transformation and reconciliation goes up dramatically if we do it. And if we don't do it, the chances that we stay in destructive conflict increase, not decrease. And so your choice is one of the two, I often find. We can stay in the destructive conflict. You can choose not to turn. You can blame the other person. You can feel aggrieved, and this will continue forever. Mm -hmm. Or you can take this risk. It may not work. But what I found that's so powerful is even when the other person doesn't react the way that we would hope them to, that they don't, for whatever reason, feel that love or feel that the gesture is sincere or what have you, it does wonders to our own heart. It does wonders to our own mind and how we see those people, how we're, the resilience that we're able to now muster in a conflict where 
Our hearts might break. We might be disappointed. We might feel pain, but we don't feel vengeance. We don't feel anger. We don't feel um, poisoned um, by contempt uh, towards the people anymore. And that in and of itself to me is a massive win for someone, even if the other side doesn't react the way that we would hope that they would. Mm. You put forward uh, three principles under, mm. under dangerous love. I'd like to you know, treat each of these. The first one is seeing people as people. Mm. Uh, we're as a society, we're going the opposite direction. I think, right? Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could, uh, you know, uh, maybe start on this one um, by us going back to Hank and Rebecca. Yeah. What What should they have done? You know, maybe take each one under seeing uh, people as as people. Yeah. You, you recall, if you just joined us, Hank's father, who a conservative father, wrote a letter outlining his beliefs to his children. Children liberal. Rebecca, one of them, calls. They have a hours long conversation, yeah. uh, which didn't resolve anything. Right? Yeah. Well, look, I, I think on both sides, uh, right? Um, for Rebecca, who is my father? What was his intent? In, in, in writing this letter. How can I see the good in my father, the, his life experiences? How can I be curious about that and actually reading the letter? He was actually trying to humanize himself, actually, ironically in this. I, I want my kids to see me in my life and, and all the things that I've been through and, and learn lessons from that and being open to human experiences that are different from our own. And, and being curious about them instead of jumping to the quick conclusion, oh, I know what this, I know who this person voted for. I know what television station um, they watch. Um, you know, I, I, I know all of these things about them. People are complicated. There's lots of factors that go into why they, they carry the belief systems that, that they have. And the more questions that I ask of people, the more I dive into their life experiences, the more human they become to me and less a stereotype of a political ideology or a race or a gender or what have you. They become complicated human beings with, with weaknesses and strengths um, and beautiful deeds and selfless deeds that they've done in their life as well as selfish mistakes that they've made. They, they become flesh and bone to us in a way that I think allow us to see ourselves in them in, in ways that are, that are really important. It, it turns out Rebecca has a lot in common with her father. She has lots of positive memories that if she could have set aside that initial reaction to, there's some things my, my dad believes that I deeply disagree with, she could have seen a lot there. and That actually opens up space to start a conversation in a much more inviting way with, you know, Dad, I, I read your letter, and this one story you told touched me, or I remember this story about us in our childhood, or I didn't know that about you, Dad, and that must have really affected um, the way that you were there. Um, and, and there's some things that you and I don't see eye, eye to eye on. I want to explore that with you, right? That's, that's one reaction when I'm seeing someone as a person. When I'm seeing someone as an object, it's how dare you. How could you, why were you thinking? Why did you send this to me? Why are you brainwashed? And, and you can imagine, you know, what's Hank's reaction to that? You think it, that that's inviting? Uh, calling someone out like that doesn't get the emotional response that we want. Oh, I'm wrong. I told my whole life story wrong. I should have never sent that to you. He got very defensive. He dug in. He started arguing back um, and, and, and started casting the same aspersions back actually the one that's brainwashed is you i should have never sent you to that university that was the you know that was the end of you and you know if you had just not done this you know life would be different and and i think on on hank's side um a, a recognition that um he could have told the story differently 
Um, I read the whole letter. And even though a lot of times when you say, um, if you ever say to someone, no offense, but then you're going to um, say something offensive. Yeah. The minute that you say no offense, you should probably stop yourself because yeah. the idea is that actually I'm going to say something offensive next. Mm-hmm. And and Hank's letter had a lot of that. I don't want you to take offense at this, but now I'm going to say that your way of thinking is evil. Um, the people that you voted for or your religious beliefs are wrong and you're going to hell. You know, that's not a very invitational letter to actually open up and allow people to see um, the, the humanity of me. Um, either. And I, I think there was a way that Hank could have wrote that same letter and talked about his appreciation for his kids, what his kids have taught him, um, what those relationships have meant to him as part of it, as opposed to a letter that was actually telling his children, you're on the wrong path. I feel like I need to correct you um, here. And here's all the reasons and justifications why. The justifications is that big thing that I actually think gets in the way of seeing people as people. I always always have a reason why it's okay not to see you as a person. Um, you said something to me. You did something to me. You're clearly wrong on this thing. So it is somehow exempts me from the human requirement to love my neighbor in this moment or the way that I treat you. I'll say it's love, but really it's actually contempt. Um, and, and, and there's, to me, no relationship between love and contempt. We often cloak contempt in love. I'm telling you this for your own good. Um, but my, my, my uh, question is a really simple one back when someone says that. Okay, I, I, I'll, I'll take you at face value that you're saying it for your own good. What was their reaction to what you said? Well, they got really defensive and backed up and actually hurt the relationship. So was it for their own good? Right? Did it, was it helpful? in any way? Did it actually help them see something that you thought was important for them to see? Or did it help inspire them to change in a way that you felt was really important? Well, no, but that's on them. And and my, my belief as a conflict mediator is, well, yes, partly that's true. It is on them. Ultimately, it is our decision to change. But we can be invitational to change, or we can actually give people more justification not to change. We can call people out, uh, which usually ends in defensiveness, or we can call people in. We can invite them into conversation. We can create space for people to explore our differences and find ways to live together and work together in common ground. And when we're in conflict, this destructive conflict and fear, it's also often the call out. It's actually the very things that I do and think actually create the resistance that I say I wish would go away. Um, right, And so if you would a- ask Hank, I think at the end of all this, why did you write that letter? He probably would say, so my children would understand me more, so they would respect me more. He got the exact opposite of that. Um, right, And if you were to ask Rebecca when you made that phone call, why did you make that phone call to your dad so he would respect me more, so he would see me more? She got the exact opposite. Hank was more convinced than ever that his daughter was deceived and on the wrong path at the end of that discussion. So neither side got what they wanted. Um, right? They didn't get respect. They didn't get deeply seen by the other person. But I do think they got one thing, which is this deep human desire to be right um, and to feel justified, that both sides, that is what they got out of the conflict. And it's a powerful human emotion. It's a powerful need that we have to feel like we're validated and right. And they got that. They're miserable. <laughs> they don't, the relationship's in tatters, but you know what? At least, at least we're right. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of us are, right? Yeah. Uh, I'd rather lose the relationship and be right and, and feel that thrill, yeah. uh, temporary and limited though it is, yeah. uh, right, of uh, being right. Um, let's take another break. When you come back, I want to uh, talk about the, the second principle here, uh, which is turning first. Mm. 
that can make you feel vulnerable, right? Yeah, to be absolutely. The, to be the first one. Um, we're talking uh, with uh, Chad Ford. He is um, Associate Professor of Intercultural Peacebuilding and Director of the David O. McKay Center for Intercultural Understanding at Brigham Young University, Hawaii. His book is Dangerous Love. That's out and available anywhere you buy books. Uh, he's visiting Utah State University as a guest of the uh, USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences Global Peacebuilding Certificate Program. And uh, he's giving a free and open lecture. That's this afternoon, 430 uh, on the USU campus, Old Main 326, titled Transforming Violence and Collaboration. This is uh, funded by the Chaz uh, Tanner Talks series. We'll have more following this. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Chad Ford. He's the author of the book Dangerous Love. He is Associate Professor of Intercultural Peacebuilding, Director of the David O. McKay Center for Intercultural Understanding at Brigham Young University, Hawaii. And he is visiting Utah State University as a guest of uh, the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences Global Peacebuilding Certificate Program. And he'll give a lecture funded by the Chaz Tanner Talks. That's this afternoon, 4.30 p.m., Old Main 326 on the USU campus. That lecture is free and open to the public. It's titled Transforming Violence into Collaboration. We're talking about the, uh, we've defined dangerous love, and we're talking about some principles underneath. I want to turn next to the second principle, turning first. Um, you, you say under this heading that uh, one way we can get better turning first is to get intensely curious about mm-hmm the other person. And you give an example. When family members share misinformation, um, which I think we're all <laughs> encountering, somebody somebody we feel, okay, you've, you've gotten misinformation uh, that you know to be false, instead of yelling fake news, ask them about sources of what they're relying on. Yeah. I think that um, turning first is about creating space. It's, it's about inside-outside transformation. So you know, one way to think about conflict is that when we're in conflict, we tend to practice outside-inside trans- transformation. In other words, the conflict changes when you change. Uh, they, they, all of these external factors are causing the conflict for me. Those, when those external factors change, typically out of my control, then the conflict goes away. And one of the reasons we get so frustrated and hate conflict is because any effort that we expand to try to change those external sources often ends in, in frustration and failure, right? And so inside-outside transformation says, in what ways might my thoughts, beliefs, attitudes be interfering in this relationship? Uh, What might my assumptions, my stereotypes, um, what have you, be getting in the way? And so when I hear something that I disagree with or something that I find offensive, instead of jumping to, okay, I know what this person is, they are a label fill-in-the-blank, my next question is to try to understand, well, why are they thinking that way? Why did they react that way? Why is, it, why is this important to them? Um, where did they get that information from? And, and I've found, again, that why is, is a magic question. As a mediator, I call it the magic of the seven whys. If you can ask seven why questions, and they don't just have to be why, 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 it usually starts with a position that they learned on Facebook or um, you know, that I saw on Instagram or something like that. And then it starts to go to some sort of um, 
the reason behind the position, you know, some sort of motivating factor, some sort of interest that I have. Eventually, it's going to get into values. These are sort of values that I hold to be true. And then it's going to get into worldviews, which is a word that I use to think about the lenses and experiences that we've had in our life that have shaped the way that we, we see the world. And when we're operating in worldview space, we, it's, there's a lot more flexibility there. There's a lot more space to actually tough, uh, to, to talk, to discuss, um, and to find common ground than there is at the position stage at the top, right? And so uh, inside-outside transformation to me or turning first is how do I create space to see you clearly and invite you into a space where you actually feel seen or heard or respected um, because once you feel that way, it's easier to show that same level of respect back um, to me. And so, you know, I was with two lawyers recently that were on opposing sides. They were representing their clients uh, on a major issue that was happening in Utah. And one of the things that I thought was so fascinating about watching their interaction was even though they were on opposite sides of a legal issue and were going to court over the issue, they really seemed to genuinely like each other. And and they actually were able to forge a, a solution outside of court. And part of it was just by getting deeply curious and creating space for the other side to say, you know what, I think we can work through this. Like, I don't actually think we need to, let's just keep talking until we get to that space. And, and so I, I find that approach uh, inherently superior to the jump to quick conclusions, cut it off, um, and, and create a wall or call people out. Because once they're out, they're not in. And actually, to get to real conflict transformation, they need to be in, not out, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. And hopeful, you know, hopeful yeah. examples. That's uh, that's great. Uh, third principle, inviting collaborative uh, problem solving. You say, and you've said earlier in the hour as well, we shouldn't just ignore the conflict. Yeah. Uh, just get worse, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. You shouldn't just ignore the elephant in the room. But we are afraid, mm. right, that we're just going to make it worse by jumping in. How, yeah. how, should, how do we invite collaborative problem solving? Well, right at the start of the book, I, I give a definition of conflict that says it's just our inability to collaborate. And, and I, I do that intentionally. I know there's other definitions of conflict, but I'm trying to demystify the idea that somehow conflict is inherently bad. I think there's a difference between conflict and destructive conflict or contention or you know contempt and those things. Conflict is a natural part of human life. We're different people. We're not all going to see things the same ways. We're going to encounter problems. And then there's a, a difference between going at the problem by being competitive in that problem. I'm going to try to win, even if it comes at your loss, or avoiding the problem. We talked about that. I just hope it kind of goes away. Or rolling over and just saying, I'm going to let the other side dominate me because at least I'll be nice, or at least I'll feel collegial, or what have you. And, and actually rolling up our sleeves and doing the hard work, which is I'm going to advocate for the things that I believe here because they're important to me and any solution would have to be able to address those things. But I'm also going to advocate for the things that you believe here and work hard, as difficult as it is, to try to find a solution that meets both my needs as well as your needs. And I'm going to take the approach in this negotiation that I'm not just going to take care of my needs and you take care of yours and we'll see who wins the battle, but I'm going to actively be out there trying to figure out how to meet your needs and be inviting you to do the same for me. And that's where the magic, in my mind, of collaboration actually happens. And I think to your point, 
it can't happen if I see you as an object because I'm not going to care about what you want or I'm actually going to feel threatened by what you want and actually be actively opposed to you getting what you want. So if I see you as an object, I'm probably not going to get there. And if I'm practicing outside-inside transformation and not turning first, I'm probably going to demand that you see me and solve the problem for me before I engage with you. And, and all of that does feel scary and all of that does feel really vulnerable. But if I can do those first two things first – now I've created an environment and an actual space where I can feel vulnerable enough to offer you things, to say, what if we did this? Would this be helpful to you? What if I tried this? Would this help? And my experience as a mediator is actually very hopeful when we get to this stage. We're actually very creative beings. We have the ability to have empathy. We have the ability to be creative. And I've seen miracles happen in large sociopolitical things all the way down to families where people said, this is impossible. It's not impossible when I change the way that I see people, um, when I practice that inside, outside transformation. So I try to control the things that I can control and think of myself as a space creator to be invitational, to invite people in instead of out then I think really magical collaboration can happen. And, and all the problems we face as, as families, as, as communities, as states, as countries, as organizations are solvable when we follow those principles, but are almost uns, completely unsolvable when we don't. We just have about 30 seconds left. I'm wondering, you know, consuming the media, uh, you kind of lose hope, right, that uh, – all of us are just uh, wrapped up in our truth, mm. and we don't want to engage as as a mediator and uh, you know conflict uh, resolver. Maybe you can give us some, some hope here at the end. That get off social media. Get off social media. <laughs> no, I, I mean, we've done this there, with our kids. There are folks out there, right, that, that yeah. are trying to do this. Yeah, we've done this with our kids and because we've seen this even as, as teenagers. And, uh, and I'd say that what you see in social media is not an accurate reflection of everyday people and what they think, nor are most of those people willing to talk like that and be like that in person and face. They are able to do that in front of the cameras or when they're anonymous there. It's very different um, when when we're in person. And and my fear is that we're learning from social media and think that that's how the world works and operates and should be when it, it's just, it doesn't bring any happiness. The studies show it invites depression and hopelessness and all of those different things. Um, talk to people, go visit people, um, go face to face with your enemies and quit fighting with them on Facebook. Great advice. Great advice. We'll end it there. Chad Ford uh, is author of a book called Dangerous Love. Uh, you can find him on the website, dangerouslovebook.com. He is Associate Professor of Intercultural Peacebuilding and Director of the David O. McKay Center for Intercultural Understanding at Brigham Young University. Uh, he's visiting USU as a guest of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences uh, Global Peacebuilding Certificate Program, and he'll uh, give a lecture funded by the Chaz Tanner Talks uh, this afternoon, 4.30, in Old Main Room 326. It's titled Transforming Violence into Collaboration. Chad Ford, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. Sometimes when this place gets kind of empty it's one sky, many cultures. Skywatcher Leo T here. Ready for liftoff? Let's go. Let's make the big jump with hundreds of thousands of pounds of fuel. And let's launch from the Earth. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1.
Eight. We have a go for main engine start. We have main engine start. Four, three, two, one, zero. Up, up, and into orbit, going almost 18,000 miles an hour to reach orbit and stay there. Fly around the blue and green orb a few times, then get ready. We'll fire the thrusters again and lift up out of orbit at 25,000 miles per hour and escape the gravitational pull of our sparkling planet and head up and out. A look ahead, where we're going in the solar system. Let's scope out the planets that rise in April. In the pre-dawn sky in April 2022, we'll see a dance of morning planets as Venus, Mars, and Saturn are all visible before sunrise in the east-southeast, forming an expanding diagonal line that lengthens into summer, and the sky is all of our heritage. It's many cultures, one sky, and high above the Big Dipper these evenings, nearly crossing the zenith of the top of the sky, are three pairs of dim, naked-eye stars marking the Great Bear's feet. You know it as the Big Dipper. These stars make the legs of that Great Bear. They're also known in early Arab lore as the Three Leaps of the Gazelle. They form a long east-west line, roughly midway between the bowl of the Big Dipper and the sickle of Leo. In the Arabian story, the gazelle was drinking at a pond, which is the big, dim, comma, Bernice star cluster. The gazelle bounded away to the east when it was startled by a flick of Leo's nearby tail, or the beautiful Denebola. Leo, however, seemed quite uninvolved. He's faced the other way, enjoying the weather or something. And closer to home, our life-giving stars blasting ions out toward the solar system as a major solar flare erupts from the canyon of fire 12,000 miles deep and 120,000 miles long, gathered its forces and released powerful streams of magnetized solar wind Sunday and Monday from the south-central part of the sun to play the joker to our Earth's satellite signals. This is an extreme ultraviolet part of the electromagnetic spectrum, causing auroras on Earth to rage and roar like a lion. As we mentioned last week, Apollo 16 and 17 were the last human spaceships to visit our own moon. Apollo 16, landing April 20, 1972, spent three days exploring the plains of Descartes, gathering rock samples. Also, Apollo 17 landed in December and collected lots of rock samples as well. And well, a, a new study examines a moon rock collected by the astronauts during Apollo 17. Scientists have found patterns that point to a 20 million year cooling period during the moon's history, defying previous understanding of lunar evolution. The team was measuring phosphorus in the sample when they found interesting patterns of chemical variation within the rock's mineral grains, which include olivine and plagiocase minerals. A geologist's delight as we keep looking up, looking around, and exploring space. Skywatcher Leo T. On UPR, with a vast array of translator stations statewide and streaming live. <laughs>